listening to Rattle and Pedal, diversion thoughts on marketing and growing professional services firms. Your hosts are Jason Malicki and Jeff McKay. So Jeff, it is mid-March and I have one question for you. Just one question for you today. Can you guess what it is? I know you can't. Who's going to win the March Madness? No, but good question. I don't know. What color is the river? Blood red. What? Blood red? What river? <laughs> Are they going to make the river green this year? What's going on? Oh, in Chicago. Yeah, what color and is the river? Yes, yes, they will. Yeah, they'll, they'll turn that dark brown river into bright green. Did they do that through COVID or did they kill that through COVID? Boy, I can't remember. They, they canceled the parade, but I can't remember if they went ahead and dyed the river or not. I so, don't know. So clearly you're not going to go down and, and, and take no, in the festivities no, is what I'm you're telling me. I'm not going down. I have <laughs> friends that have never missed a parade down there, but I don't have a burning desire to go down there. All right. So why blood red out of curiosity? Man, that's, that's, oof, that's macabre. I didn't see that one coming. Well, given the topics we're going to cover today... Perhaps that's the appropriate one. The appropriate one. Yeah, fair point. All right, behind the headlines. So it is mid-March and we are going behind the headlines. And actually, I guess we should, given the headlines, I think we should timestamp this. So we are recording this on Tuesday, March 14th, 10 in the morning, Eastern time. So we're going behind the headlines. And the first headline is Silicon Valley Bank. There's like 50,000 articles on this. So I'm not going to pick out any one that you shared specifically, but obviously this is a fast moving story. A lot's happened in the last seven days. And it's a really interesting one. And you're the one who was kind enough to raise it as, as one that we should talk about. So do you want to give the, the teardown of what happened, at least as we know it up till now, or do you want me to kind of take a stab at it? You take a stab at it. It'll be good training for you. Okay, good. Let's see what I can do here. So you, you picked the holes that I missed. So as I understand it, Silicon Valley Bank, obviously it's a bank headquartered in Silicon Valley. They had sort of built their business around serving venture-backed software companies. In fact, I believe in one article that you shared, I found that I believe it was about 50%-ish of venture-backed technology companies banked with Silicon Valley Bank. And of course, then those founders and their key leadership teams do their personal banking there as well. So they grew their deposits rapidly. I think they went from 60 billion to 200 plus billion in 24 months in that window during the pandemic, I guess, 21 to 20 till now, I guess. And they took a lot of that, those deposits and invested them in what seemed like a pretty safe venture. They invested them in government bonds, I think mostly three-year treasuries. And then over time, what started to happen, obviously over the last nine months, is the Fed moved the funds rate from near zero to four and a half percent because inflation's so high, they're trying to tame inflation. And the tech sector started to struggle, faced economic headwinds, reduced valuations. And so those clients start pulling money out of the bank. And of course, these bonds that they bought, their three-year treasuries are now overpriced, or not overpriced, excuse me, they become worth less because new bonds being issued are paying more and the bank doesn't want to sell them and they don't want to write them down. They, they hold them at market saying they're going to hold them till they mature so they don't have to mark them down on their books, but then they're started, forced to start selling them because all the withdrawals that are coming. And I read in one article you shared that they essentially lost, they were going to lose $17 billion to cover those withdrawal requests. And then sort of in a total chaotic moment, then as I understand it, 40 to 50 VCs that have deep relationships with SVB then turned around and basically told all their portcos that they need to get their funds out now. And last Thursday, $42 billion fled the bank. And the bank failed, government stepped in. So as I understand it as of right now, they've been unable to sell the bank's assets at auction. At least in the US, they sold the UK subsidiary of the bank to HSBC. 
But the bank or the, the U.S. government has said they're going to make all depositors whole. I already have made them whole, I believe. So that's where we sit at the moment. I believe there's a second auction planned to try to sell the assets of the bank in the U.S. and have no takers in auction number one. So what I miss, I don't know. I, it was a pretty pretty comprehensive rundown of what I've heard and read over the last five days. Was I close? Did I miss anything? What did I get wrong? I'm just sitting here in awe at the display of Jason Malecki's greatest talent, and that is the ability to synthesize and summarize information into a coherent story. Well done. Good. Thank you. Thank you, by the way. So, because I, I, I wasn't sure, you know, there's a lot written. So, did we miss anything in the teardown of what happened? And if so, what's critical that we missed? Because I know that there's other things that we didn't cover there, or what's happening, I should say, because it's still moving. Your summary was fair. This, to me, reminds me of the, the stories of what happens during war, right? Truth is the first thing to die in a war. <laughs> war in social media? Yeah. There's so much we don't know about this. And yeah. even you and I hesitated putting this story in behind the headlines because there is so much that, that we don't know. But your summary is, to the best of my knowledge, a very solid summary of the facts as we know them. There are a lot of stories swirling around in terms of the actions of leadership inside the organization and what they knew and didn't know and when they knew it and the actions that they took. It's going to take a long time to sort all of those things out. Yeah. The more immediate issue associated with this is what does it mean to the economy and you know professional services firms specifically, which is the whole point of behind the headlines, right? What does this mean yep. to the people that listen to us? And I think you know neither you or I are Nobel laureates in economics or banking experts. I was I was very close. I was very close. No, <laughs> very close. But I do think that we share one thing in common with many of our listeners. We're pragmatic business executives, right? We run businesses and, and we want to be on top of, of what's going on for the welfare of our businesses. And, and I think that's the importance of, of this topic. What does it mean to the professional services firms industry or professional services industry. And maybe we could just talk a few minutes about what we see our clients doing and, and reacting to this in the initial days here. Well, I think you said a lot of good stuff in the setup on this I want you to talk about because you know, when we first started talking about it, you said, well, it seems to me that the biggest issue is the macroeconomics and the uncertainty associated with it. So talk a little bit about that because I think that's the best starting point. And then I think that then you, you layered more narrowly into what it means. And of course, the answer is the classic, it depends, <laughs> right? It depends. My favorite line in consulting. But start with the macroeconomics. I think you had some good kind of just thoughts on that that people need to be thinking about. I feel like the economy right now is at a crucial place. Again, not a Nobel laureate, but we find ourselves in a bizarre economic conditions, right? Low unemployment, high inflation, rising interest rates, an incredible amount of government spending and debt continues to go unabated. And this environment is different than the environment 
so many of us as business people have operated in for a long time. And that is a low interest rate environment where money was really, really cheap. And I don't know that lots of people know how to manage in these conditions. Uh We take things for granted that maybe we shouldn't. And it's a time for firms to go deeper and reflect on you know, these changing macro conditions. And I think beyond kind of a generic, is there going to be a recession or is there not going to be a recession? But how should we think and operate in this different environment? So that's number one. And make sure you understand why you're doing what you're doing from a business management perspective, instead of just being on cruise control. So many of us are on cruise control. Yeah, I think that's a very valid point. I think your first part about just the notion that many of us have not managed through this, you kind of get the sense that maybe the leadership of SVB falls into that lump because, you know, I, I teased you kind of coming into this call. I can understand you and I being surprised by the rapid interest rate changes we've seen in the last nine months, but I have a little less sympathy for a bank not seeing that coming. It just feels like they're asleep at the wheel to not have a sense that interest rates might move much more quickly than than they ever, ha- well, I shouldn't say they ever, that they had than they have in like the last 40 years or something like that. I think the last time they moved this quickly was in the 80s or the 70s or something like that. So I just, I, I find that kind of shocking that people whose whole career is based on rates and risk miss that and seem to make some, the other thing I've been thinking a lot about, this is really random, but it's like, you know, there's been some criticism, not criticism, but like some sense that depositors should have been able to see the risk. And I kind of laugh. I'm like, well, if you or I put our money in a bank and we looked at the, where they were investing their resources and it was in treasuries, on what basis would you be like, oh my gosh, this is a risky place to put my money? Like, I think very clearly very few people would have seen that. So setting that aside, I, I agree with you in that it is a different dynamic than we're used to. And it does change your behavior. You, you think twice about like, what well, should you borrow money in any form, way, shape, or form? Especially, you know, a lot of business borrowing is not fixed rate. It's variable rate stuff, right? So you're, you know, it's not just that you're borrowing at 7% today. You might be borrowing at 12% tomorrow as, as it's going. And you have to kind of factor that in, I guess, to what you're planning to do. Yeah. So, uh, well, we take for granted the health of our bank and we shouldn't, but yep. we often do that. And I think you always have to scrutinize those relationships. And it's important to understand, you know, risk management as well. You know, all of these entrepreneurs had this money sitting in this bank in huge sums of money sitting in this bank because, you know, these were VC investments that came into these organizations and they just channeled them into a single bank. Not thinking about, you know, basic risk management and, you know, what amount of those deposits are insured by the FDIC, for example, right? And they were well above those limits. You know, I think a strong risk management is going to spread that money across a number of different banking relationships. But now I feel like we're getting into, you know, the weeds with this and and again, outside of our bailiwick. Well, I want to pull you back to what you said to me in the setup, though, about what this means to your growth plans and stuff like that. So talk more about that, because I think that's really where you had some really great advice to share. I think it's important for firms to reassess their growth plans, particularly those that have targeted the financial services industry as a significant growth area. Those that are doing IT consulting probably have financial services 
as one of their core market segments. Because when you look at the transformation life cycle, banks are probably rarely in you know, the center of that life cycle and making a lot of investments in technology and process improvement, digital transformation. And what does that mean to those companies? Are they going to pull back? Are they going to accelerate? I, I don't know. Some are going to move forward. Some aren't. Some are going to reevaluate their risk profiles. But regardless, it's going to impact professional services firms' growth plans if they're targeting a financial services industry as a core. Not to mention, you know, industries that are ancillary to banking. Yeah. And then even the whole macroeconomic situation. It's just a time to reevaluate what's the fallout for this. And the thing that scares me the most is there was such a herd mentality in the SVB case. And it was exacerbated by social media and digital banking. You know, money and, and withdrawals of that money were, were just flowing so quickly. You know, yeah. a CFO with a, a cell phone was transferring uh, hundreds of millions of dollars or millions of dollars in a minute. And it's incredible how fast an industry can be turned on its head because of technology and to think through the speed at which this stuff happened. Yeah, I think that there, so I, I joked in the lead up that I, I'm sort of like the consummate optimist. I do think there's a unique characteristic of this particular failure that I would imagine most banks don't have, which is this weird mix of lots and lots of venture-backed companies and then a handful of influencers to those companies, i.e. the funds themselves. So I think it would be rare that you would have, you know, 30 or 40 influencers that could basically like that have this massive ripple effect that like they did. And in other banks, you just kind of said like, was this, should people be concerned about running banks? Obviously, well, that's not our, our knowledge set. But for me, that was one thing that I took hard. And as I read it, I was like, well, this seems like a really interesting intersection of two or three things happening at once that all seem kind of like rare to be occurring at the same time. I imagine there's other dynamics that could get in the way and cause the same type of, of outcome. But Well, that is to me the issue here because it feels like we're sitting on a powder keg. Yeah. And people are rationalizing some spark that's going to set it all off. And nobody wants to be, you know, the last one at the party. Yeah. <laughs> so they're like, well, yeah. uh, okay, I'm going because nobody wants to be left holding the bag. And and that's the scary thing. Yeah. You, you don't want to be the 43rd billion on Thursday, right? Yeah. That didn't make them out. <laughs> it's like, oh, no. <laughs> so. All right. What else should firms be thinking about, if anything, and then we'll move on? We've actually spent more time than we plan on this probably, so we should probably move on to our next topic. Yeah. I, I think take the time to look at your pipeline and your growth plans. How much of it has come from financial services? What's your backlog? You know, What are your opportunities? If you have a key account strategy in this space, you know what's going on with those key accounts? And yeah. this provides... I think an opportunity for account managers and business development people to be having conversations about what's going on in the banks. I would extend that advice to the tech sector as well, because if there's there's so much tech sector exposure to this, that, that it's a great opportunity to be a sounding board, to give advice, to provide guidance, to be empathetic, just to recognize that, you know, if you're a 
we're serving inside of a channel. We, the the account managers inside those channels and the partner program owners might be feeling a little bit of stress right now, even though they're not the ones at the helm of the financial decisions. I would imagine this stress percolates down every organization that's dealing with it. So, well, I think there's also a, a great opportunity for firms here to to add value and yeah. talking to their clients about do they have their arms around the risk to their organization and can technology and enhanced processes make it even better in in the work i do with it consulting firms and the segmentation of various markets time and time again what clients are trying to get to with technology are the insights the predictive analytics around consumer behavior but also risk and are there leading indicators of those things and are the banks on top of that most of them would be really good at risk compliance you would think a bank in silicon valley you know built in the haven of technology would be on top of a risk profile but it wasn't so don't make any assumptions about yeah. the capability and capacity of a bank to be on top of this. And that's an incredible opportunity to add value. There's always opportunity in crisis, right? Every time. So yeah. as you're assessing what this means to you, where are the opportunities for you? Be real about those and then lean in the ones that you, you think you can. So You're listening to Rattle and Pedal, divergent thoughts on growing your professional services firm. Your hosts are Jason Malicki, Principal of Rattleback, the marketing agency for professional services firms, and Jeff McKay, former CMO and founder of strategy consultancy, Prudent Pedal. If you find this podcast helpful, please help us by telling a friend and rating us on iTunes. Thank you. Now back to Jason and Jeff. All right, let's move on. So we had two other things that we had, had slated to talk about. I doubt we'll be able to hit them both. One was on Goldman Sachs. The other one was on just a bunch of pricing articles that I had sort of assembled together. Which of these two do you want to go after? Goldman Sachs. Not a clue what's going on here. So you fill me in. I read the article and I have to admit that I did not feel competent to, to summarize. You tell us what's going on in this article about Goldman Sachs. I love this story because it's a great case study in brand positioning, brand extension, and growth strategy. And there's a lot of lessons I think firms can take away from the story. So after the financial crisis, 2008, there were some new rules put in place for banks. There was a rule called the Volcker rule that limited banks from investing their own money into particular types of deals. And as a result of that, banks began to think about how they could diversify. And Goldman Sachs, in particular, made a strategic decision to go into consumer banking. Those of us who know Goldman Sachs know that it is a true powerhouse in investment banking, which is essentially the opposite of consumer banking. But they saw an opportunity to go into the consumer market to diversify their revenue stream, less risk, more consistency, and it seemed to them to be a logical growth strategy. So they made several investments in digital platforms and partnerships to provide loans, credit cards, things that you would think about 
with consumer focused banking. Well, in their last investors call, they raised up their hands and said, no more. They're getting out of the consumer market and going back somewhat to what they do at their core. And as I read that article, I, I just kind of laughed. You know, hindsight is twenty twenty, of, of course. But from a, a brand and marketing perspective, it seemed so obvious that that was not the right play for them because they wanted to go from a Wall Street bank, if you will, to a Main Street bank. And to me, that is just a bridge too far, if you will, for a brand to stretch and Goldman in particular. So I, I agree with you on that. How would you have avoided that misstep, I guess? How, how would you have you know, navigated that conversation internally inside the organization? Because this comes back to your notion of brand relevance and this idea that are you even remotely relevant in these areas? And I think there's a lot of reasons to say no. If you were in the room during that decision-making process as the, the decision is unfolding to say what's, you know, what's going to Main Street Banking, how would you have approached that conversation? You hit on the first one, asking the question, is the brand relevant? Yeah. Yes or no? Can we make it relevant? Yes or no? What would it take in terms of time and resources to make it relevant? So those are some, some fundamental questions. But before I ask those questions, the more pertinent question is, who is our ideal client? And who is that ideal client that values the value we provide? And the answer to that question, to me, is clearly, clearly the upper end of the income level and not Main Street. To me, it's just so self-evident that the Main Street is not going to be willing to pay the premium for a Goldman Sachs brand. And, and that might be my own bias, but my gut tells me you just can't extend the brand that low into the market without eroding the core brand as it currently exists. So even if you extended that far down and were able to build relevance, it would be at the cost of your own brand, in my opinion. Yeah, and they try to do some things to mitigate that. I mean, they they launched their consumer credit card. That wasn't their credit card business under the name Marcus. They they tried to use a different name for yeah. one of those products to try to stem that. True. So they're basically diversifying the firm. You could come back to in some ways this circles back around to the SVB stuff, and that you know it comes back to kind of central positioning. It feels like SVB was exposed because they were so narrowly positioned inside the venture back tech sector, and that sort of like created some problems that they didn't maybe foresee. And now you kind of have Goldman doing a diversification thing where it's like, well, we it's going to consumer banking. Like you said, diversify the revenue stream, there's less risk, more consistency. So the questions you have to ask yourself in those types of extensions are, is, you know, first is your ideal client. Shouldn't there be a question about like who we are, our core capabilities or core competencies around like what about our organization would enable us to be successful in this new landscape that we're choosing to, to, to enter or enable us to win? Why would we win there? There's plenty of banks already there. In fact, there's probably way more banks than we ever need there. How are we going to win? You nailed it. That is the, I guess, the third question I would okay. ask. What's our core capability? Okay. And the answer to that question was finally answered 15 years after the experiment started that their core capability is wealth management and investing. 
And it's not to say that you can't extend off of that, but to whom you extend is the key. And they've come to that realization that it is the upper income buyer that sees the value of that brand and they can extend to. But even their high-end customers, I think the number was around 30% of their customers took out loans from Goldman Sachs. So even their core customer wasn't looking at them for those kind of core consumer needs. Oh, I see what you're saying. You're saying the core customer they already had, the high yeah. net worth individual was turning elsewhere Yes, for this this new extension that they were lucky to launch. They weren't thinking for, for that at all. Yeah. So for I think understanding your core capability yeah. and the value you provide and to whom you provide it, Okay. And to what degree can you extend beyond that is the fundamental building block for any brand strategy. And I'm sure Goldman Sachs is like all of us humans and so many of the firms that I've worked with, there's very smart, driven, successful people in those firms that have not experienced a lot of failure in their life. Yeah. And, and they can rationalize these extensions because they've always been successful. Well, why couldn't we extend? You know, we're good. We're really we're, good. I mean, we're going to tax, right? Yeah. <laughs> we, we can do whatever we damn well please, yeah, right? Exactly. It's important to have that confidence, but it's got to be grounded in reality. Yeah. And my sense is Goldman Sachs did kind of a classic Coke market research. Of course, people, they prefer the taste of new Coke over old Coke, but they don't think about the brand loyalty that existed beforehand. And they, they built it on a purely rational, it makes sense. We've got a great brand. It'll diversify. It'll give us a more consistent revenue stream. Other banks have been able to do this. We should be able to do it as well. And I don't fault them for, for giving it a try. And like you said, hindsight's twenty twenty. but my gut told me it's never going to fly. It's just never going to fly. So I, often we approach these as, why does this matter to professional services firms? But I don't want to do that. I have, I have a clarifying question for you, I guess. So, you know, if a firm is thinking about an extension, and that extension could be, hey, we should offer up these new services, solve these new client problems we're not solving now, or... We should enter this new industry vertical. We should introduce this new technology set. So any sort of like, you know, adjacency that's defined around kind of creating growth. And the analysis suggests that the ideal client for this new service looks different. Is that a red flag or like, how do you think about that? You know, when you're thinking, because sometimes I wonder about that. Sometimes I'll look at a firm, I'll see a diversified firm. I got an inquiry from a firm recently. A European-based firm that was extremely diverse, much more diverse than I would would normally recommend. And that's the first question I kind of started asking myself when I looked at it was like, well, it looks to me like practice one has a different client than practice four. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? Does it matter? So I just, I don't know, talk about that a little bit before we wrap. I'm just curious. It's a great question. And it depends. If you're going to diversify into multiple ideal clients, you need to recognize that that is going to impact your brand strategy. And we saw that at Goldman Sachs, where they started to create these sub-brands like Marcus. They created these partnerships. I assume they were branded in, in some particular way. That creates a more complex brand architecture and portfolio you have to manage. 
but it's also going to take a much higher level of investment to build the relevance with those buyers. Yeah. And you need to understand that the marketing strategy, the marketing investment, the resources, the time, the thought leadership that goes into those things is going to be different. And it's going to put a strain on the system and it's going to be less scalable than a more focused approach would be. Now, I'd say I would I would argue that a bank like SBB and their focus on Silicon Valley entrepreneurs is a great brand strategy. I agree. And it proved successful for decades. So I don't think it and was- the failure wasn't in like the brand strategy. The failure right. wasn't in customer service or client service or client acquisition. The failure it was, was in risk like management. In, like, banking fundamentals. Yeah, yeah. You know? Exactly. Which exactly. is- Hard to screw, hard to wrap your head around, but yeah, I agree with you. Like that was the first thing that I that I thought of is, is I think people will think that it's a story of they're too narrow. They should have been more diversified, and that would have protected them. I don't think that's the case at all. No, I think so, they had a, a good business model. They just didn't have good risk management. Yeah, yeah, or at least that's what we believe. Yes. outside looking yes. in, right? Yes, like you said, that's that's so, for sure. That's for sure. Okay, let's let's move on to the third topic. Do I you want like to try to cover it because yeah. we're, we're we're okay, okay. All right. So third topic is actually, uh, I'm going to use this for concatenation of two articles. Oh, fancy, fancy yeah. Excel word. Well done. So there was two articles in the journal that I just sort of found interesting and I've kind of lumped them together. One is about consumers' attempts to book a lane at a bowling alley and the, and the price that they quoted was $418 for a one hour reservation at the local bowling alley. I mean, it was all about sort of like the move to what I'm calling demand-based pricing in sort of mainstream businesses. So it's things like, you know, you can book a discounted bay at Top Golf on Tuesdays uh, relative to Saturdays, or it's cheaper to go to the MC at you know before four o'clock. But that's starting to kind of get even more sophisticated. You're seeing even AMC mentioned that they're looking at, at pricing tiers based on seat location, the same way you would at like a concert. So it's sort of pairing that article with a second article on what I'm calling everything as a service, where you know everything's being sold on subscription now, right? So you know, I've been getting my razor blades on subscription for about five years or seven years or more. I don't know. Now I can buy a restaurant on subscription. I can buy P.F. Chang's on subscription, which I joked with Jeff will almost certainly happen in my near future <laughs> against my will. <laughs> but everything is coming with options now. And the example I gave was, you know, I had the HVAC group out to look at our furnaces the other day and, and, and that's a membership base. And there's three tiers of membership options for how you might want to, you know, consume service from your, you know, relatively local HVAC contractors. So I'm kind of lumping it all together saying like Main Street businesses seem to be adopting more value-based pricing patterns. So whether it's, you know, demand-based, service-based, I just think you're seeing price sophistication rise even in relatively small Main Street type businesses. So let me pause there and you can certainly like kick on that before I kind of go into why I think it matters, but I'll pause for a sec. I love this article. When you first sent it, I was like, well, well, why are we coming? Why are you sending that? me this? Every <laughs> but it really is a market trend that firms need to pay attention to. And they need to be thinking about their marketing or their pricing beyond time and materials. And firms are just loath to get out of that model. Yeah. But these pricing approaches, whether you love them or hate them as a consumer, really is looking at your business as a micro economy in really some respects, right? In simple supply demand curves, right? If demand goes up, you know, 
and there's limited supply, like a bowling alley, there's only so many X lanes, amount of lanes, right? Yeah. And there's more people that want to bowl at, you know, Friday at eight o'clock than there are at Tuesday at noon. Yeah. I think like, to your point, the reason I glommed on these articles is I just seen in a lot, in my experience, a lot of firms stuck in a one size fits all pricing model. They have a day rate, they have a cost plus pricing, time and materials, hourly rate. And they think that they've actually like gotten sophisticated if they do a tiered rate where it's like, well, we're going to bill, you know, junior resources at a different rate than senior resources. And that's like a, a smart pricing strategy. And I just think that they're, you know, the reason I glommed onto these articles is as I, I just think clients are much more receptive to new approaches to pricing than they were five years ago because they're encountering it everywhere they go. Like you can't avoid it. You know, you can't, you literally can't get a guy to fix your, you know, water heater without encountering options-based pricing and value-based pricing in the moment. I mean, that literally happened to me. I just kind of like shook my head and laughed. I just want you to fix the water heater. <laughs> you know? <laughs> But that's where we are. And so I think that clients are more astute about the relationship of price and risk. And I think as we talked with Blair Enns in our in our modern selling series, it's much easier to have value-based conversations these days and value-based pricing conversations than it was five years ago because clients understand it and they're they're open to it. They're open to the idea of of shared risk, shared reward. They're open to different pricing models that aren't the same old time and materials, hourly rate models, especially if they're not in the purchasing function, which hopefully they're not. So that's why I brought it up. I, I think it's more, I think the articles are sort of just passively interesting in terms of managing your firm. I think as a consumer, they're interesting to read, but I do think the implications are there's opportunities to, to change your pricing models and it doesn't need to be one price, price size fits all. As you, as you pointed out, it's like you can have different pricing models for different clients and you should because your work is worth different things to different clients and the nature of your delivery is different for each client. So there's no reason to have a single pricing model for every client you face. In fact, it's damaging both to the firm and to the client. In my opinion, the takeaway for firms here is you need to understand your your cost and profitability structure. If you Absolutely. don't have that, you're not going to really make smart pricing <laughs> decisions, right? 100%. <laughs> That's number one. Correct. Number two, you're probably going to have to have excess demand. If you are not yep. at capacity, that tells me that your your service is not worthy of premium pricing. All of these businesses in the in the article had excess demand. So I think that's a wonderful point, by the way. You, so your wonderful marketing's got to be good. Otherwise, yeah. don't enter in into this. Yeah. Unless yeah. unless your pricing structure could create excess demand. Yeah. And there was there was a an example in there of a young woman that joined a gym that had surge pricing and it frustrated her because she felt like I just want to work out and yeah. I form this habit of working out Monday, Wednesday and Friday, but on Fridays or or whatever, you know, my $10 class went to 30 and I'm on a budget and it, you're you're making it more difficult for me. And she just said, yeah. I'm done. It's important to to understand your customers really well. Yeah, it kind of makes me takes me back to the conversation with Fred Reichelt in that regard. It's like, you know, if you're gonna do this, make sure that you understand that you don't lose sight of the love of your client, right? And that you're you're there to, you know, create value for the client and share in that value. And the price is a function of the value. 
and you and your pricing model should reflect that however you approach it. So wonderful advice that you gave on both fronts, both demand and and you know customer client orientation. And there's um, a number of ways I think to implement this. One of them is a key account program, uh-huh. right? That that's kind of the equivalent of of membership. And Brian Caffarelli talked about this in Good Revenue, Bad Revenue, right? If you buy three product lines from us, it puts you into a different tier. Yeah. And think about what that tier provides, whether that is, you know, some kind of fee discount or access to the firm's top resources or turnaround time on a given project, whatever the case may may be. There are a, a lot of creative ways to create that quote unquote membership in professional services firms. Key account programs are just one of them. I think that's a really astute way to put it. When firms think about pricing, I think they often think about, you know, hours, hourly rate equals price. And, but there's so many other benefits that you can provide to the client. You just pointed out a whole bunch of them in rapid fire. It's like, you know, access to see most senior people, you know, quick turnaround time, maybe priority during busy periods. I mean, there, let's face it, there is finite capacity or, or some, there's maybe not finite, but there's some certain threshold on capacity. And there are definitely seasonalities to most firms, you know, from, from clients, right? Clients have their own behavior and they all take vacations in August and they disappear and go go dark on you, right? Mm-hmm. So, it, you know, whatever it might be, you know, whatever it is in your client base. So, yeah. Can you imagine well, the big four charging surge prices for tax and audit season? Uh, yeah, I, th- I think I, they, I, I would hope they don't. Although, uh, let's just hope they improve the quality of their audits as we, yeah. as you we were picking up, as you were saying before going into this. We'll talk more about that, but for all for the, for the safety of all of us. Anyway, on that note, let's take a let's take it to wrap. So this was great fun. I I, I really enjoy these behind the headline segments. I hope listeners do as well. Uh, Jeff and I we haven't talked about this. I'm going to put it on the air though. We have talked about flying another survey, so we are going to look for some feedback on these new episode models here in the next couple of months. So great conversation and I will talk to you next time. See you, buddy. Thank you for listening to Rattle and Pedal, divergent thoughts on marketing and growing professional services firms. Find content related to this episode at rattleandpedal.com. Rattle and Pedal is also available on iTunes and Stitcher.